The Better Understanding Podcast is an invitation, an open-hearted, extended hand, to increase our ability to work, lead, and live with one another more effectively. The premise and philosophy of the podcast is that it all begins with understanding ourselves and understanding others. In season one, and with some of the most successful experts and leaders of diversity and inclusion efforts in the world, we explored what it means to lead inclusively. In season two, we are bringing to life our Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Arrive and Thrive, via powerful stories, earned wisdom, and lessons learned from some of the world's preeminent leaders and thrivers. Join me, Susan McEntee Brady, as we explore how to arrive and thrive. I'm so excited to kick off season two of the Better Understanding podcast with my co-authors, Janet Bowdy and Dr. Lynn Perry Wooten. Janet serves as the executive chair of the board of Deloitte U.S., the largest professional services organization in the United States, and Lynn Perry Wooten is the president of Simmons University. As you likely know, I am honored to hold the Deloitte Allen Gabriel Chair for Women in Leadership at Simmons and serve as the inaugural CEO of the Simmons University Institute for Inclusive Leadership. Janet, Lynn, and I joined forces and co-created Arrive and Thrive, Seven Impactful Practices, for women navigating leadership. And it's turned into somewhat of a movement, a phenomenon. Janet and Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. It's amazing to be here. So we three have sort of been dividing and conquering in interviews and writing articles and media appearances. Now we're sort of doing speaking engagements. It's fun to be back together. We don't get to do it as often as we want. So I wanted to bring the three of us to our listeners here with our own podcast. I thought it would be helpful to, to give our audience an idea about the book, what we have been finding is sticking and how we're thinking about it. So so I want to start with you, Janet. How are you describing the premise of the book? I mean, have, have you stuck to what you've been doing or what are you leaning into these days? So Susan, again, thank you so much for having us. And it's great to be back, the three of us back together again, as we've been, as you said, all, all our separate ways. So I think the premise of how I've been talking about the book has been pretty consistent. A few threads that have been focused on uh, the first is sharing it. Absolutely, the three of us believe that for far too long, women have had to focus on surviving, not thriving. And we really want to change the conversation from not just how do you get there and survive, but how do you get there and thrive? We know that women, certainly joining the corporate workforce, my world start at essentially 50-50 between women and men. We know that by the time we get to middle-level managers, less than a quarter are women, and that shrinks even more. One of the things that's changed since we started is we do have more women as CEOs in the Fortune 500 than ever, which is amazing. But the bad news is that still at 8.8% in the US and still only at 4.8% globally. And then we do have higher turnover in that cohort than we do than we do for men. So my, my sort of premise and how I, we thought about this from the beginning is that surviving as a leader is the floor, not the ceiling. And that women are looking for the two things that I love about this book is sort of storytelling and list. You all laugh at me saying that based in research. And that really resonated with the women and men that I spent time with as we've been out and about talking about the book. And I just love being able to emphasize the collaboration between Deloitte and Simmons and how frankly, this is even advancing our partnership in a much more meaningful way. So those are, I would say, the threads have stayed pretty common with a couple of refinements that's I've gone along the way. So, Lynn, what would you add? 
So when I've been out there, I've been talking about, I've been doing this research for almost a quarter of a century, talking about what does it mean for women to arrive and thrive in the workforce? So sometimes, Susan, I have to say, I get sad that I'm still talking about it. Yeah, yeah. But I have to say also that I'm energized by the seven practices and in particular, giving women a framework that's timeless because the world has changed in the last three years. And the women I'm talking to are even not even surviving. They're tired. They're tired of equities. They're tired of not having gender parity, this pandemic era. All these things are calling to action. And so using the seven practices for innovation and reinvention have been a lot of my conversations. If I just jump back in there and build on yeah. one quick thing that Lynn said, is I was, as she was talking, I was thinking about how my own conversation has evolved as we're coming out of the pandemic, this idea that we still have a million women fewer in the workforce than we did when we started. And frankly, our collective responsibility as leaders to, to change the conversation for women has also been a really important part of the discussions that I've been having. And you're so right. It's the, it's why do we still have a million women less? And how do we get them back to the workforce with organizations, systems, all of those type of things we need? I've been going out and doing work with, within organizations now with all genders. The work I've been doing with women leaders, though, I am feeling this like overwhelming burnout. And then a lot of people copied you. We're not really taking care of ourselves professionally, emotionally at home. And so there's this overlay of stress, I think, that feels like we couldn't have projected, but we kind of predicted when we started this project about this future is hybrid. This is a new world, new world of, of how we're connecting and how do we take care of ourselves? And Lynn, I love what you said. This is lifelong continuous journey stuff. These are timeless practices. So let's dive into a couple practices. Um, Janet, what practice did you most connect with? I mean, this is a leading question because I know what you're going to say, but I'm, I don't know the other part of the answer, which is what practice did you most connect with before the book took off? And has this changed? A couple things. I would say the practice that I'm the most passionate about this message being um, sort of shared with women is around inspiring a bold vision. What I'm finding is when I talk about it, so obviously we have the privilege of writing about it when I talk about it. The head nodding from women when I talk about going back to my younger selves and that I never thought I'd be a leader because I wasn't the person that woke up with a brilliant new idea in the morning, but I had come to appreciate that you can absolutely be an incredibly visionary leader by drawing on attributes that are really play to women's strengths, listening, connecting the dot, looking for white space, being able to articulate the vision to a variety of audiences and tailoring your message to those audiences. The energy I get back from the audiences I've spent time with has reinforced that. But I'd remiss if I didn't say, Susan, it's something I talk a lot about, but I often get asked about which practice um, have I learned the most around through this journey. And I, it is absolutely in investing in your best self, which there are some of the practices that we talk about there that I have done over the years, but I've learned so much from the two of you around doing that. I've also gotten called out in the carpet with some questions about the book, like, Really, Janet, do you meditate? And I have to say that um, that is still a work in progress and my co-authors are potentially more evolved there than I am, uh, which always gets a, a good laugh and a smile. So those are a couple of, couple of you know, how I continue to learn and evolve um, on this journey and what's both reinforced my thinking and what's been that new. 
I, I want to comment on both the what you said about vision and also what you said about meditating. First, what you said about vision, I, I noticed too, and I'm wondering, Lynn, if you have, that there's this, this just like relief when it's almost like the three of us are in some ways giving permission to women to not have to wake up with that brilliant thought. I, w- I have been surprised how deeply ingrained this concept of vision connected to leadership and our and imposter syndrome is. Like if I don't have the vision, then I can't be a leader, then I must be a fraud if I'm trying to drive something new. It's just, it's like laying new ground. And I feel really honored that this is having that impact. The other thing I've been talking about as I've been talking about this practice that I was not thinking about when we wrote it and I started talking about is sort of how our society idolizes those that are marked as visionaries um, and aren't always people that I think we should be necessarily idolizing. So that's been an interesting and really important one. I've been with smaller audiences. I've had a lot of conversation around our sort of adoration and putting those leaders potentially on a pedestal uh, that can be that much more intimidating and create that much more quote unquote imposter syndrome. Lynn, thoughts on vision while we're here? Because then I want to go back to consciousness. It goes back to what Janet said. Sometimes we think vision is too big and I can't be one of these visionary leaders that we put on a pedestal. So when I've been talking about the book and Arrive and Thrive, I've been saying all of us have the power to be everyday visionary leaders. And this book gives you theory, it gives you tools, and it gives you stories. And as you start to craft your own vision as a leader, think about what do you want to do strategically? What stories do you want to tell? How do you give people hope but going back to what Janet said, it's not only hope and storytelling, you have to have action and follow and the competency and the skill sets to do it. And that's what I've been working a lot with, with the audiences I've been talking to. It's funny about the meditation comment. All of us, all the practices take what I call a second consciousness, which is I'm going to, it's like meta process. I'm going to I'm going to actually reflect on and think about my actions before I take them. That to me is micro meditation. So if I'm more aware of that, what I think and feel drives what I say and do, then I'm just going to take that little moment to say, hey, is my attention here actually landing as I want? Is it having the impact I want? And it's incumbent upon us as leaders to check in every now and then about that. And that shows just more consciousness. So I tend to, I got, I've gotten called out on the meditation question too. Like, what is this really all about? Do we all have to do this? And it's, a, no, it's more about being more aware and taking time out. I love, I, I the, the one practice that I talk about most is actually one, Lynn, that you infuse in the book. And I think it's the most underutilized leadership practice of all. And that is reflective sense-making and give it, reminding everybody, just take a minute. We're all so busy. Like, take a minute. How is your day? What's becoming clear to you? Uh, what's coming up for you? What are you wanting to do? What are you noticing, right? Those kinds of questions, super helpful. So Lynn, why don't you share, what practices are you finding resonate most with the audiences you're connecting with? Yeah, resilience is what's resonating with the audiences. And it goes back to what I said. We have all been under a lot of stress the last three years. And so how do we create, how do we combat burnout? How do we deal with well-being in ourselves, our teams, and our organizations? And what I'm seeing is first, people are having to take that deep breath as you say, do those reflective practices, sense make of what's happening in the world. Sometimes sense make is discernment. Sometimes the sense-making resiliency is what do I need for myself? It's just asking that question. What do I need to do for myself? What do I need from others? 
practicing that silence so that I can be my best self. Resiliency also is about um, learning. You know, we talked about this at the current conference, learning and reinventing. We've all had to reinvent ourselves. And that is just so important, the women who read the book. What do I need to learn to be in this new world post-pandemic? What skill sets do I want to have across my career? I've been talking to a lot of young women with the school starting. And I'll say to them, you're going to live to be 100. And yeah, they, they all get that look, Susan. They're by like, dear, oh my God. And it, given that you're going to live to be 100, you're probably going to spend 15 years in the workforce. And that's going to require resilience and reinventing yourself. You're going to have some good times in your workforce and your leadership career, and you're going to have some bad times. And how do you bounce back? How do you learn? And how do you thrive throughout the journey? It's been the practice that's resonated. It's funny, you're talking about the aperture is widening and I'm about to have a milestone birthday. And I remember the narrative I grew up with is like, you kind of, this is the time you really make it happen so that you can have the big retirement. And I have to tell you, I have met so many people recently in their late 60s and in their 70s and even well into their late 70s who are thriving in whatever it is that they're doing professionally or non-professionally. It's kind of exciting time. So let's bring it back to right now. Janet, what are you hearing leaders saying they need right now? What are you sensing that they need right now? So first, I want to just bridge to Lynn's comment of something that I've been using from the book quite a bit, which is not just to bounce back, but to bounce up. And so that's a line I'm really finding is resonating with people, I think, because this moment that we're in. I think how authenticity plays out in this next chapter is probably the thing that I find that I'm getting the most sort of response to, and I'm certainly seeing across various dimensions of my professional and personal life that people are grappling with as, as we continue to sort of careen from crisis to crisis as a society, um, as we return to work and seeing all what all that looks like, will this sort of authenticity, how did this authenticity conversation play out and how do we stay strong and true to the conversation around authenticity. The other conversation I've been having a lot is how do we continue? It's a little bit maybe broader than what we talked about in the book is how do we make sure that the conversation on equity remains front and center and we don't lose it in, in the hurricanes that we continue to navigate through, which obviously our work around the incredible importance of building inclusive teams are two things that I find are really resonating in this moment with the complexity that each of us, a different set of complexities that each of us are facing every day. You, you bring up a lot, but I, well, I want to talk about inclusion. It's our seventh practice. I find it's the practice I talk about the least because some of the foundational skills and practices and techniques to create inclusive cultures is doing the other six practices well, right? So I, I tend my dialogue is more there, but Lynn, I want to thank you for this question. Lynn and I are hosting our quarterly strategic advisory board meeting. Most of them are CHROs and chief diversity officers for the Institute here at Simmons this week. And we were in preparation for that meeting talking about what do we want to know? And what we want to know is this is the answer to this question. And Lynn, you're working with leaders as well. What's your answer to this question? What are you seeing leaders want right now? What's the zeitgeist of the moment? Yeah, I tend to be a macro organizational theorist. So I see the world from a big picture. 
And the practice that I'm seeing is how do I create this healthy team environment with so many things going on? You know, you call some people call it the big quid, the silent resignation, the need for psychological safety. And so that practice is manifesting in many forms. Sometimes I'm working with leaders and they're trying to understand how do I go from being an individual contributor to a leader of a team to then what I call a mom, this manager of managers. And so helping leaders scale up what it takes to be a team is becoming very important. And then uh, hybrid work. What does a healthy team environment look like in a hybrid work? Very few people want to go back to the office in a traditional sense, pre-pandemic, 40 hours plus in the office. So creating a healthy team on Zoom, creating a healthy team that works virtually, having those moments where the team is present in person and high performing are all important. And then this notion of, again, the essence of a healthy team is making sure when the team comes together that one plus one is greater than two. So collective knowledge, wisdom, and performance in orchestrating a healthy team have been very important to me and the people I'm talking to about arriving to life. I want to connect a dot between what the two of you just referenced. And Janet, I appreciate that you brought up the concept of equity and not losing sight. And... Lynn, what I make up about what you just said is a lot of this equitable, a lot of the thinking, a lot of the application of the tools that we review in the book actually happen in a team format, in a day-to-day meeting format, right? And so here's what I'm realizing. I'm finding that the field writ large of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging has a big dilemma on its hands right now. And the dilemma is we have made it very difficult for some of the very people who we need to come into the conversation and lead equity in organizations to feel safe doing so. Some of them just not feeling like they can step in. And I'm wondering how the two of you address this dynamic and if you've seen it. So some of the language we're using, some of the right, wrong, good, bad, um, okay, not okay, I think it's stifling. I know that I am talking more and more about a learning environment. So if we can learn how to reach and how to create equity, then it's safer because then when we learn, we're not always right. We're not supposed to know it and we can apologize when we mess up. But practically speaking, I'm wondering for our listening audience, if the two of you could could weigh in a little bit about this. Are you seeing this phenomenon? It's almost like an us, them, right? There's the drivers of, yeah. Part of it is this big divide. You say the we versus me, the us versus them. And this really does come back to what Janet said and what we talk about, Susan, the work of inclusive leaders. And first, it has to start with ourselves. You've heard me say this. We have to start with ourselves. And then we have, we can listen to each other's stories and understand each other's stories. That helps with this work. And when we talk about courage goes with grace. And so the courage to be bold, the courage to do these things, to create those equitable and just environments that Janet was just talking about, especially in teams, is so important. But when we make mistakes, and we're all going to make mistakes, we have to give grace and use it as a teachable moment. To ourselves and to the people around us. Yeah, right? Right. Sometimes we're hard on ourselves. You and I talk about that, Susan, than others. Yeah, grace is the I was going to talk about two things. One was grace, which Lynn, you've done perfectly per usual. And the other is tone from the top. And tone from the top being unwavering as we navigate these really tricky waters. And frankly, doing that with grace. So those are the two things that I'm seeing make 
probably the biggest difference in terms of creating space for the conversation, a space for the work. I want to tie back to something you said around creating teams where an inclusive mindset, an equitable mindset is at its center. I've actually found the conversation really pushing. I've been pushing the conversation there and I've been being pushed because this two of our practices, courage and authenticity, so much then sit into if you have the courage to surround yourself with people who are different from yourself and create an inclusive environment, how powerful that can be. So that message is really resonating in conversation to sort of draw the practices together. I just want to pull that thread back to an earlier part of the conversation. I love that. I feel like this is what, this is what I find leaders really want. They want the pragmatics. How do, what does this look like? What does this look like now? I do find that some of this comes to light best in stories. And speaking of storytelling, Lynn, you brought up storytelling. I wonder if each of you could just tell a brief story about a practice that has impacted you. I'll tell a quick courage story. If I hold to something in my last sets of weeks and months, so it certainly wouldn't be in the book. So I think maybe while writing the book, we Deloitte released our first ever DEI transparency report and a huge cultural change for us in our organization. I, as a business leader, could barely get my hands on our legal team around the diversity of my own teams was where we were culturally before to then in this moment, 18 months ago, putting out to the public our transparency data as an organization. We came to another really tough moment as we we're releasing our transparency report, which we got a lot of challenge in around pay equity and why we weren't talking about pay equity in our transparency report. And as the leader who has the ultimate responsibility for everything that gets sort of sent on behalf of Deloitte, it was a very, um, it took every ounce of what we talk about around courage to get comfortable and confident to, to release our pay transparency data and our pay equity data. And I use lots of the tips we talked about, which is using really broad sounding boards, um, probably is the one that I use the most to really push myself to get comfortable with that decision that we were being called on. It's, you've been great here, but you need to push an edge further. Uh, there are many examples um, over the last sets of months of, of places where we've had to all collectively use courage in this really complex landscape, but that's a recent one for me. Janet, the, the line that I've been saying about the practice of cultivating courage is courage is not the absence of fear, it's the presence of vulnerability. That's Your story brings up, it's not just vulnerability interpersonally, like it's not just something, a consequence between me and another human vulnerability as a leader and how it's correct or how do you, did you coach yourself through this? Cause this is bold for you to do. I was psyched that you guys did this. How did you navigate yourself? You know, for me in my sort of toughest moments of having to pull courage together, I do have a board of calling them a board of advisors is way too formal and it changes by the way, based on the topic, but I had a set of people that I went and just made, that I knew would challenge me, that I just pushed my thinking. Here's why I'm comfortable doing this. Here's what makes me anxious. Push me on both of those. And so I used a sounding board to get comfortable and to sort of create that sort of stealing courage on behalf of both myself and the organization. And as the um, ultimate signer of that document with my co-leader, that was, that's what gave me the courage and the confidence. Okay. So listeners, this is why we say, don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Exactly what Janet just said. We're not meant to do this. Any of this, any of these practices, we're really not meant to do all by ourselves. Lynn, how about a story from you from recent time? There's plenty. 
there's plenty going on at Simmons and in higher education. And yeah, there is always, as you know, Susan, something going on at Simmons. And my stories from recent time relate to vision and the work of inclusive leadership. So the, the world of higher education is changing. And with my leadership team, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about what is the vision of a small university like Simmons? How do we have a distinction in the small universities in Boston and the Uber College Town where there are lots of large and the world of women-centered colleges? And so we've been creating a vision to reinvent our business model, to think about being the premier place over the course of the women and our male allies' life that they can really come to Simmons for a education that prepares them for their profession and develops them for leaders in every way inside and outside the classroom. So um, hot employment on campus, leadership development, all classes have a leadership component at the grad, the undergrad, online and on the ground. So that is one big thing I've been thinking about, the vision and the new business model for a distinct small university. And even the way that the Institute fits in for educating women and people post-graduate. And then this work of inclusive leaders, often we talk about our team and human capital, but at the university level, I've been thinking about the work of inclusive leadership and what it means for my students and creating a student environment that students feel like they welcome, they feel like they belong, and that equity is front and center. And so my new big thing is experiential equity. So often in any organization, but especially at universities, you pay a lot of attention to students who may need attention, and you pay a lot of attention to students at the top of the distribution. But experimental equity means that everybody who gets a Simmons education gets all the resources, all the benefits of high-quality connection with faculty, staff, and students, co-curricular, curricular and that they can go out in the world and really be the everyday leaders we talk about. So experiential equity is my big focus. And we're bringing everyday leadership to life at Simmons. It's been a pleasure being in some of those conversations with you, Lynch. Uh, so we're at the end of our time. I am always excited by hearing something very practical, very pragmatic. And I'm wondering, we've all done these interviews where our host wants our best advice, as if there's so many nuggets in the book that I love. What's your favorite tip, Janet? And a little bit why. So both of you have hinted at this through the discussion. The line that has, I think, resonated the most and been the most impactful is that nothing done well is done alone. And I got asked by an interviewer who is one of Oprah's main producers um, in a recent live event that I did talking about the book. And she asked me a question that she said stumped Oprah the first time she got asked it. So she asks it often, which is, what do you know to be true? Which is a really amazing question. And I had to pause for a beat. And this idea that we're not in it alone, but that nothing done well is done alone has been something that I have to keep reminding myself of myself keep asking for help and continue to encourage women and frankly all leaders to be fearless in asking for help surrounding yourself with people who will help you who are invested in your success and will help deliver that much better outcomes because you're not doing it yourself love it so great lynn yeah so courage is the practice i continue to work on and one of the best advices I say to myself and others is when people ask you to do something that you might be afraid of, your tendency is to say no. 
but instead say yes and how. Yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try it. I'm going to be courageous. But what do I need? How am I going to show up to be my best self? And going back to what Janet said, and who do I need? That personal board of directors so I can have that courage to do something successful. Yeah. All right, I'll throw in mine. The thing I know, what do I know to be true is that harshness is the enemy to inclusion, to best self, to innovation, to great problem solving, to great working together. And that management of our own narrative, paying attention about what we're saying about ourselves and what we're saying about others that we work with, super important and getting a little gentle with it, bringing in the compassion. I think the three of us are literally like jumping on flights in the next whatever hours. And I just want to thank you so much for being here. Uh, In the coming 12 months, we're thrilled to be welcoming a few thrivers featured in the book, as well as other executive leaders and pioneers who have leaned on one of the seven practices or more and want to share their experience with our Better Understanding listeners. Janet and Lynn, I love every time we have the opportunity to connect. I always learn from the two of you. It has been my honor to collaborate with you and bring this work into the world to share with the masses. So thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. To learn more about all things Arrive and Thrive, please visit ArriveandThrive.com. And for more about the work of the Institute for Inclusive Leadership at Simmons University, visit us at InclusiveLeadership.com. Thanks, everyone.